So if you could give your kid perfect pitch or a higher IQ, maybe pick the color of their hair or weight, would you do it? How about inoculate them from things like diabetes? What's the moral line on genetic engineering? Today, Dr. Timothy Ferlin breaks it down for us in this fascinating lecture delivered in the Magnus Fellowship. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. So over the summer, we had a phenomenal mini course on bioethics presented by Dr. Timothy Ferlin, who is a senior fellow in the Albertus Magnus Institute. He's also a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard Medical School and the Burnett Family Distinguished Chair in Ethics at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. Because of the timely nature of the content, we wanted to release it to the podcast audience. We've also been asked uh, how one can access the full course, and that's available to all fellows in the fellowship, giving at least 25 bucks a month under AMI's all-access program, which actually gets you all access to all the recordings of all the courses we ever offer. And so as we continue to offer more and more courses, this subscription will become more and more valuable to you, hopefully, and beneficial. If it's not, in fact, at least twice as beneficial as your Netflix subscription, we're happy to refund your $25 a month. But it really does go a long way to helping us do some good work. It is a labor of love that's only possible with your generosity. So we're grateful for that. We're grateful for you liking, uh, sharing this podcast. It goes such a long way. So thank you. And here's a great lecture for you on bioethics and genetic engineering with Dr. Timothy Ferlin. Enjoy. So uh, I want to, in the time we have left, I want to start to get into some of these other beginning of life issues now that we've kind of laid that ontological foundation here, right? So um, let's talk a little bit about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. I think this is a topic that's going to become increasingly important as we go forward. Um, You know, we're already seeing this now. If you read the Fukuyama book, he's talking about this as sort of, you know, that book was published in 2003. He's saying, you know, at some point in the near future, this may be possible where parents could screen embryos. Uh, You know, they could have, I mean, right now, in a particular IVF cycle, you might create five embryos. Embryo factories are coming where you, you could produce thousands of embryos and you could scan them. So what's going on here, right? I would say PGD is it's a technique where you extract one or two cells from a three-day embryo that is generated in vitro in order to identify certain genetic defects, right? And that term defect is, you know, significant. Uh, We can have a whole conversation about that. Um, And, you know, I would say it's generally assumed that an embryo by then is going to be between eight and 16 cells at that point uh, and is not harmed by this early form of biopsy because there is a kind of compensation mechanism that's inherent in the embryo. Um, And the idea is that the expected role of those cells that are extracted will be adopted by other cells in the organism uh, in accordance with its overall development. Um, So the question is, you know, what's going on or why would somebody have PGD performed? Um, Right now it's being used to decide whether to implant or not to implant a particular embryo in light of of those results. So you're looking for certain genetic and somatic criteria. And, you know, if you find out an embryo has has chromosomal abnormalities 
or I mean, that's what's really what's going on now. But it's not hard to imagine a scenario in the very near future. And th this is already kind of going on where you're going to be able to select embryos for very specific genetic and somatic criteria. So because you want to have a child with certain physical features, you want to have particularly hair color, eye color, skin tone, and eventually you're going to be able to choose, you know, height. Um, you're going to be able to choose against and select against certain attributes. Um, you know, somebody might have a genetic predisposition towards uh, alcoholism, you know, substance abuse, um, you know, debilitating diseases like ALS, Huntington's. Um, so I think that's initially how this process is going to play out where people are choosing against, you know, these really terrible diseases. But I think it's very quickly going to go in the direction of, you know, why not give my child a boosted immune system? Why not give them a, a very sunny disposition? You know, why not protect them from the possibility of depression or addiction or any of these other things, right? I think the temptation there is going to be very, very strong to go in that direction or to just have a full-blown designer child. I think in the near future, instead of hiring a wedding planner, you may hire a child planner, right? Where they sit down and it's like, you know, you go to Home Depot and you look at, and you want to repaint your kitchen and you look at the thousands and thousands of different, you know, colors, you, you might do something very similar uh, with your children, right? Uh, what do we think about that? What do we think about that that scenario? Do we find that terrifying? Do we find that exciting? Do we find that overwhelming? I have a question. Sure. Just taking it the next step. I mean, you know, you can study an existing embryo and the genetic structure of it, but how far is it in the future where they'll actually be splicing those genes and yeah, we can do it right now. Making that decision, they're doing it now. Yeah, we can do it right now with CRISPR-Cas9. So that was a real game changer. So that was discovered by Jennifer Dudna and George Church, you know, here at Harvard. Uh, you know, and a French scientist named Emmanuel uh, Charpentier. They won the Nobel Prize for their work. It's one of the most important discoveries in the history of biology, I would say. I mean, it's an absolute game changer. Where in the past, one of the most common arguments against genetic engineering was. Uh, what's sometimes referred to as the precautionary principle, the idea of unintended uh, consequences that, you know, we really didn't know what we were doing. I think that still is a valid argument, but it's going to become increasingly less so as our ability to gain, to engage in very precise gene editing, you know, becomes more and more refined, right? So we're going to have to find, I think, other types of argument here um, as the, the, the technique becomes more and more precise. So, I mean, right now we've discovered the gene that's responsible for perfect pitch, Right. There's one gene that's responsible for perfect pitch. We right now we regard that as, as something almost kind of miraculous. Right? Somebody has perfect pitch, right? So that's that's extraordinary. In the near future, I think the vast majority of us will likely have perfect pitch. And how will we view that person who does not have perfect pitch? Probably as disabled, right? Where so you have a disability, right? So these norms of health and fitness and therapy and enhancement are going to change. I think James, last class, you raised a question about this with you know, um, therapy and enhancement, how do we distinguish between the two, right? I, I would say therapy is directed towards uh, preserving sp species-typical uh, functioning or restoring species-typical functioning, but that can change, that can shift, right? And I think that, that's a good example of that, where right now, you know, species-typical eyesight is 2020, but it could become 2010, it could be 25, right, in, in the near future. Right. And if you have 2020 vision 50 years from now, you're probably going to be seen as disabled. Right. 
So the norms themselves are going to shift, right? The average height for a man right now is six feet. We might go up to six, five, six, six, something like that. Right. Um, we, we may see some, some pretty dramatic changes even in the human body plan. Um, some people, Alan Buchanan has argued we should radically transform uh, the female pelvis because of the danger of, of childbirth, right? He thinks that this is sort of a flaw of the evolutionary process and we should go in there and radically engineer the, the human, the female body plan. Or some people argue in response to climate change and rising sea levels, we should genetically engineer human beings so we can breathe underwater. Or I would say, we'll just stop putting so much carbon in the atmosphere. I mean, that might be a, a better approach there than going in and radically, you know, genetically engineering uh, the human body. Um, any other thoughts there about that process of, of designer children and how that process might unfold? Well, do, do, you, do you think that there's a specific ethical issue with it per se, or is the ethical issue the sort of slippery slope argument? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, Sandel has developed a really interesting argument here. Sandel argues that there is something inherently wrong about parents genetically injuring their children because it, it destroys the norm of unconditional love, which is, is really the, the telos of, of virtuous parenting. He's going to argue that we choose our friends. We even choose our spouses, but we don't choose our children. He thinks this is really morally significant, right? That we don't attach conditions to our children and say, I will love you only if you have certain genetic and somatic criteria. I'll only love you if you are six foot three and blonde hair and blue eyes. And, you know, if you, right, he thinks yeah, people do that. I mean, there are bad parents out there. There are vicious parents out there, but that's contrary to the norm and the practice of virtuous parenting, right? So again, he's going to use it's a Aristotelian argument. He's going to say that the practice of parenting has a telos. What is the telos of parenting? What is the purpose of parenting? Raise good children, I suppose. The well-being of children. And we use that as a criteria to distinguish between good and bad parents. Right? We say these are good parents. Why? Because the kids are thriving, the kids are flourishing, they're doing really well. Well, then wait a second. Wouldn't it be um, in the interest of a good parent to want their child to have a sunny disposition, to want their child to be um, free from uh, alcohol abuse and drug abuse. Yep. Um, so to yep. a certain extent, aren't there characteristics of this that could be seen as positive? And again, where do you draw the line? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. Thank you. So, yeah, I think you're, you're entering into some deep waters here. There's a Michael Parker article called the, the Best Possible Child that we're going to talk about in the fourth session, where Parker's really pushing back against Julian Savalescu, who defends this idea of procreative beneficence. He argues that parents have a moral duty. There's a moral imperative to create the most perfect child. And there's this whole debate about, well, what does that even mean? What would be, what would be the most perfect child? Savalescu tends to focus almost exclusively on genetic and somatic criteria. I would say just being free from disease, you know, being free from bodily illness. I would say, yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a good thing, but there's more to eudaimonia than just having optimal biological functioning, right? I mean, uh, you can be an Olympic athlete, but that doesn't mean that you, you've really achieved eudaimonia, right? That, that's, you know, Aristotle says you need, you don't have to have perfect health. He says you do need to have, you know, some good health, right? He says, if you have, you know, really severe chronic illness, if you end up in something like a PBS state, he gives the example of like a Rip Van Winkle figure, you know, sleeping for 20 years, right? 
He said, we can't call that person eudaimon. Why? Because eudaimonia is an activity. It's not a state or a condition. And the person in the PBS state is not manifesting the virtues uh, that, that characterize you know, genuine human flourishing. So um, I, I think the danger there at Program of Beneficence is you go too far in terms of identifying the human good solely with optimal biological functioning. And yeah, I mean, I think to be eudaimon, you need some good health, right? But you don't need to be uh, totally free from disease or illness, right? I would say, I would agree with the Stoics and Nietzsche here that, you know, illness and tragedy and hardship can play a, a really important role in personal growth and development. And, and um, the best possible human life is not necessarily the life without, with the least amount of, of hardship or adversity or tragedy or struggle or conflict. I would say in many cases, those, those can be really important moments in our lives where they really spur us on to become more than what we are. Dr. Farland, there's a really good movie. It's about, it was about 25 years ago now, I think, called Gattaca. Yeah, with uh, Ethan Hawke. And, you know, it, it explores that. You've got two brothers. One of them is genetically designed. The other one is, is you know, natural. And, and as it turns out, the, the natural one ends up, you know, in, in many competitions beating the genetically designed one because yeah. of yeah. because of a desire that he has that the other one does not. And I think that goes to your point that you made there. It's a great movie. It is. Yeah, I highly recommend the movie. That screenplay was written by Andrew Nichol. That, uh, I think it's really a profound film. And um, Dr. Cass, I know, was a big fan of it. Um, yeah, but going back to Tom's point, I think there, there are very real altruistic motives here. I think what parent would not want to, to ensure their child is free from really serious disease, right? So I think that's really important to recognize here, that there are very real, very legitimate therapeutic uses of these technologies that are going to be, uh, that, are, that are morally laudable, right, and morally praiseworthy, right? The question is, can we have those therapeutic benefits without going in the direction of enhancement? That's where the really interesting ethical questions emerge at that point. When you start to go in the direction of enhancement, right? Sandel thinks it's going to radically disfigure the relationship that should exist between parents and children, where the focus becomes too much on uh, where the, the, you know, Sandel basically argues that this is going to be the, the ultimate kind of logical terminus of helicopter parenting, right? Some of you might be familiar with helicopter parenting, maybe even victims of helicopter parenting, where the parents try to, to, you know, micromanage every single aspect of the child's life. And he says, you know, genetic engineering might be the ultimate expression of this, where the preferences of the parents are literally inscribed in the genome of, of their child and the genotype of the child, right? And there, there's a kind of radical self-assertion here. There's a kind of narcissism. There's a kind of, uh, you know, a failure to, to let go. There's, there's um, you know, a failure to, uh, you know, some people talk about the right to an open future that all of us should have, right? That, um, you know, parents should give their children space to discover their own identity and, and to, uh, rather than, you know, sort of radically micromanage every single aspect of their life. You know, my concern is, as I've been saying, I think this, this process is probably going to go in the direction of enhancement very quickly. And that's going to raise all sorts of social, ethical, and political issues that I think Fukuyama does a very good job of addressing in his book. Fukuyama is basically going to argue that social and political equality depends upon natural equality. It depends upon us all belonging to the same natural kind. And he's going to argue that morality is depends upon human nature as well. He's an Aristotelian. He's going to say that human that morality is really inscribed in, in human nature and us being a very particular kind of thing. And that if you lose natural equality, then you lose any basis for social and political equality. Think about that Jefferson quote again, right? 
They have some human beings engineered with saddles on their backs and other people engineered, booted and spurred, you know, ready to ride them, right? So back to the the initial point about the technology that makes the the designer children possible. Yes. So with the the argument you you mentioned about how it would very quickly shift from therapeutic to enhancements um, mm -hmm. applications, right? Is the argument there that the risk of the shift to enhancement applications is sufficient to justify an obligation to oppose the technology wholesale? Okay, great question. Very good question. I would say that's that's one of the central questions today. Um, you know, if you you read, uh, you know, the the most, I think, the, the most perceptive critics, you know, people like Sandel, Cass, Fukuyama. Um, no, no, I think they're going to say that you know um, this is morally laudable. It is praiseworthy. Um, but once it gets started, it, it's probably going to be unstoppable. And uh, once the genie's out of the bottle, um, this this whole process is going to go in a, in a very dark direction very quickly. And we're going to lose any kind of agency. So, you know, Cass frames it in terms of this sort of great paradox. He says that, you know, the paradox is that as our power grows, right, over human nature and over the evolutionary process, we become increasingly powerless to exercise any limits upon this process, right? And he says there's, there's a profound paradox here, right? That, right, the more powerful we become, the more powerless we become, right? It's a kind of power that undermines itself. Right, right. so while that's kind of a grim, you know, empirical prognosis, I guess, let's say, back to James's original point, would that simply mean that it's an, you know, in, a, an intrinsically morally licit technology, but that will likely lead to um, you know, morally illicit um, applications and consequences in a kind of, you know, double effect sense of having this foreseen, okay, you know, negative, negative effects. Okay, good. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I would say that, um, you know, the way that Fukuyama frames it is through this notion of a devil's bargain. It's a really powerful notion he's using there. He argues that biotechnology offers us a very unique set of ethical dilemmas because, Biotechnology in particular is what he calls a devil's bargain. And a devil's bargain is where there are very real legitimate goods present. And what's the problem is that the harms are embedded within the goods. And we cannot have the benefits without the harms. And he's going to argue that the benefits in many cases are very tangible, right? So you can see the benefits of not having ALS or, you know, not struggling with substance abuse, but the harms are more subtle. They're, they're, they're spiritual, right? They're kind of dehumanization that we see with certain forms of biotechnology, the kind of loss of dignity that, you know, people like Cass will point to that it, it's more subtle, right? The kind of dehumanization that might take place here. Um, and it, it's, it's more difficult to measure and quantify. So Fukuyama is going to say, going back to, to your question here, that no, we can't have one without the other, right? They're, they're just inextricably bound up. And, uh, you know, this is something very unique to biotechnology, right? That presents these, these devil's bargains. Um, you look at other types of technology like nanotechnology, nuclear technology, and nuclear technology is another case example or interesting one where, you know, can we have the benefits of nuclear technology without the harms? You know, like that, that debate's been raging for a long time. I think it's a good, good analogy to you know, nuclear technology. 
I hadn't, I didn't quite make that connection, but I think that's a, that's a good one, which, which makes me wonder then, yeah, I understand the point about the kind of inextricable entanglement, you know, of the, the, the harmful applications of the technology with the legitimate beneficial uses. But I suppose how, how is that, why would that be unique to biotechnology as opposed to many other tools that have legitimate uses and yet their very existence also creates the possibility and even likelihood of abuses? of that same tool. I think there's something unique about biotechnology in the sense that it, it is this, you know, uh, radical transformation of just who we are, right? I mean, it, you know, um, to actually go in there and to, to re-engineer the human genome, right? To, to create, you know, an entirely new species and to seize control of the evolutionary process. And we've never seen anything like this in the entire 14 billion year history of the cosmos, right? To have a being that is now capable of deciding what we will be right and guiding and directing that process in a really unprecedented way and also engineering the rest of the world around us i mean this is this is certainly going to flow from this as well where we're not just going to stop with engineering ourselves right we're going to probably engineer everything else around us and it's going to be a process that's going to have to go on indefinitely as well it's going to be never ending it's like we're software updates right we have to constantly keep updating your software that kind of arms race dynamic. Yeah, we're going to see the, the genetic arms race dynamic absolutely where say you go up to 160 and then everybody else goes up to 160, you're going to have to go up to 180 or 200. You have to get that software update, so to speak. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to keep, um, you know, that, that it's going to be coercive and I think a really interesting and very subtle way, right, where I think all of us are probably going to be dragged into this process. You know, as, as soon as one country goes down this route, as soon as a handful of individuals go down this route, I think the rest of us may not have a choice at that point. But really very good questions. Uh, thank you, Kaylin. And uh, very good conversation. Thank you, everybody. So let's just think about what's the most common justification for PGD, you know, going back to Tom's point. I would say it's gonna be broadly utilitarian, right? So, you know, the avoidance of the birth of a child affected with a genetic illness, so that will spare the parents of the suffering involved with that, uh, raising and caring for such a child, while the idea is that the birth of a, a normal child or a biologically healthy child will lead them to experience happiness. I think there's some questionable assumptions there. If you ever spend time with you know families with children with disabilities, I think you know maybe at first after the diagnosis there is a kind of grieving process. Maybe they go through when they you know they find out there's a Down's diagnosis or something like that, where they may do let go of, you know, the idea of of maybe having grandchildren or the child getting married or something like that. But then you see, I would say something that's almost kind of miraculous where there is this um, unconditional love that begins to develop where, uh, you know, some of you might be familiar with L'Arche. It's it's a really beautiful charism uh, in the Catholic church uh, or it's open to everyone. And uh, the focus there is on living in community with people with disabilities and you know you'll meet a lot of families there with with children with disabilities, and it's one of the most you know um, a lot of people that go there they experience a kind of healing which I'm really fascinated by. They're, they're very very uh, you know places of healing and and, and peace, and um, you see uh, this this beautiful profound unconditional love for their children. They love their children as they are. They see their children as as being um, perfect as they are. They don't see them as some kind of problem to be solved. They don't see them as some kind of you know, um, you know, and this is a whole conversation that's going on. If you listen to disability rights advocates, this is a whole debate now about whether or not we should see even deafness as as a disability. 
you know, there was a famous case that took place back in 2003, 2004, where there was a couple that was deaf and they deliberately sought out a sperm donor with five generations of deafness because they wanted a child who was deaf. And they, they went through the IVF process and they, they got what they wanted. They had a boy who was born deaf. His name was Gavin. This became a national news story. And they were absolutely excoriated in, in the media. Uh, people just tore into them. They said, you know, you were inflicting harm on this child by deliberately seeking to have a child who was deaf. And, and some people started to push back, people in the disability rights community and said, you know, this is unique and distinctive and, and beautiful way, rich way of being human. And the world would be a lesser place without people with disabilities. If people with Downs did not exist, people with other disabilities did not exist, the world would be a lesser place. But this is, this is a distinctive and rich and beautiful way of, of being human. And all of us benefit from people with disabilities. They're, they're not some kind of problem to be eradicated. Right? This is going on now with, with uh, uh, you know, PGD is being used to, to target children with disabilities, right? And I, I think there's something incredibly troubling about this. I think we're very quickly going in the direction of eugenics. Okay, so I think the justification here is, is you know, basically sparing the, the parents of, of suffering or society, maybe sparing society. Um, I, I think, again, as I, said, I think there's something really problematic about that, that people with disabilities are just drains. They're just, you know, pulling us all down. They're just dragging us all down, you know, and, and they have nothing to offer. Right? I, I think that's just, it's troubling on a lot of levels, right? Um, I think the other argument that's given here is based on the autonomy of the parents, right? This is an expression of, of uh, honoring the preferences of the parents. Uh, we, I, we saw this in the, the very troubling case I spoke about at Boston Children's Hospital, where the parents wanted to, to switch to comfort care because the child had a very minor disability. He had that stroke and had a very minor physical impairment. And, you know, the mother, very chilling, saying, you know, he would never survive in our world, right? He just won't be able to keep up in our world. Um, so you'll hear that argument based on autonomy here. Uh, that they have a free decision to reject the kind of child they do not want to have and to have the kind of child they do want to have, right? That would be a reason for PGD to be morally acceptable. Um, on this view, right, the choice of the parents uh, or of the mother alone, right, uh, where the sperm was donated or purchased, uh, if reached under conditions of full autonomy would be considered ethical. Um, Right. I think there's also um, another argument here that might come up, sometimes called the non-maleficence view. And this is a pretty extreme view. The, the idea here is that being born itself might be a kind of injustice, right? There's actually these wrongful birth lawsuits that are showing up now where people are trying to sue their parents for being born, right? You're seeing these now. There's This is a real debate in, in jurisprudence and, and legal circles whether or not we should allow for wrongful birth. We have wrongful death lawsuits, right? If you have a family member that you know, is tragically killed by some you know, malfunctioning product or malpractice, but should we allow for wrongful birth lawsuits, right? So some people, some, some of these bioethicists will argue that we can cause people harm by simply bringing them into existence, right? I think all three of those arguments are unpersuasive. So I would say the first argument I would raise here would appeal to what we call uh, the, the principle of beneficence. Right? So I would say a very, very basic principle of, of bioethics is that every single intervention, right, especially interventions for which there is no consent on the part of the patient, and this happens sometimes when we have children, obviously, 
and, and let's say the parents are not involved or somebody who is incapacitated, right? Those interventions can be justified if and only if they're performed for the good of the patient. That's an absolute bedrock key principle there, right? You have to demonstrate that that intervention is for the good of the patient, right? That's called the principle of beneficence, okay? In the case of the embryo here, right? I would say, right, um, the embryo does not receive any benefit at all from going through the BGD process, right? There's really no benefit here, right? In many cases, it's going to be very, you know, extremely harmful to the embryo to undergo BGD because the next action in many cases is going to be to, to kill or discard that embryo, right? So how does that benefit you uh, to be discarded or killed, right? To discard or throw away that embryonic human being, I would say is to fail to provide them with the conditions that are necessary for him or her to continue to live and is thus going to be a violation of beneficence and the basic good of life uh, for that human being obviously would not be honored there, right? I would say secondly, to discard an embryo because it is so-called defective, right, amounts to, I, I would say it's a kind of a negative eugenics there, right? It's a kind of elimination of the disabled, the weak, uh, the vulnerable, the unwanted, and again, you're going to really run up against that, that fundamental principle, again, of, of the equal dignity of every single human life, whether you're disabled or not, whether you're, you know, whether you've got perfect hearing, whether you're, you're deaf in one ear, when you're, whether, you're, whether you're deaf, whether you're blind, whether you, you have, you know, some type of serious genetic illness, right? Uh, I think this is taking us in, in the direction of, of, of eugenics very quickly. Um, Right. I think once we start to go down this path as well, it's going to be very difficult to draw any kind of principled line, right? Um, to really to kind of rein in that that process, that practice of negative eugenics. Um, I think by the end, virtually any embryo could find him or herself eliminated um, and judged undesirable and eliminated. So I think initially this is going to focus on really severe disabilities, but eventually embryos that don't have, if you're not blonde, if you don't have blue eyes, right, you might be discarded, right? Well, that, that's not a disability, right? I mean, to, to have, you know, brown eyes instead of blue eyes, right? I think this is very quickly going to go in that direction where almost everything could be seen as undesirable, right? And we're going to see a real kind of cheapening and coarsening of, of human life here that, that I find very, very troubling. And you got to think about the engineers here as well. You got to think about the designers and the parents. How are they being affected by this? Not just the embryos who are being killed, but how is this affecting the parents, right? How is this affecting the designers? How is this, this disfiguring their souls? Right? How is this destroying their relationships with, with their children, with others, right? So Sandel's going to talk a lot about what he calls the Promethean impulse, right? Augustine calls this the libido dominandi, right? So this is the desire to, to dominate, to control, to master. Sandel seems to think that this is just spiraling out of control. He seems to think that this is becoming the dominant force in the modern world. And we're seeing it in one aspect of human life after another. We're seeing this in marriages. We're seeing this in interpersonal relationships. We're seeing this in the workplace. We're seeing this in how we interact with the natural world. We see the natural world is just so much raw material for us to dominate and control and to impose our will upon, right? You know, Heidegger's writing about this in the 1930s in his, his essay, his question concerning technology. He talks about nature as just a standing reserve, right? And Sandel is very concerned that parenting is one of the last holdouts. He thinks that parenting is, is one of the last areas where 
the Promethean impulse is not really seized control. And he's very concerned that it's spreading to parenting now where uh, the libido dominante, the Promethean impulse is, is eventually going to, to transform even parenting. And we're going to lose that norm of unconditional love there, which should govern the relationship between parents and children uh, in, in virtuous parenting. Uh, Efren, you got your hand up. You want a question you want to raise? Um, yeah, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, this is probably going to have the situation where parents that are helicopter parents are going to basically helicopter over the, it gets into the, their, um, them being able to develop a virtues, you know? Yeah. Um, okay, good. So that's another important topic there about whether or not we should engineer people to be morally virtuous. And so it's not possible for them to be evil. It's not possible for them to be vicious. So some people have tried to argue that, yes, we have a moral duty to go in there and, and try to engineer people uh, to, to, you know, be more altruistic and to be more, to be less violent and less aggressive. Uh, David DeGrazi has defended this view. That's an interesting question. Is, is there a right to be evil? Is there a right to be vicious? Should we honor that? Is that the right way to frame that? Um, I would say here too, that that project is probably not going to be very successful because um, I would say virtuous activity requires what Aristotle calls phrenesis, which is a kind of situational awareness. Um, you know, Aristotle and virtue ethicists in general are very, very skeptical of, of creating something like a moral rule book. We sometimes think of morality as like this giant rule book, right? And you're faced with a moral dilemma and you look up the dilemma in the book and it tells you exactly what to do. I think that's really very implausible because it seems to ascribe to human beings an omniscience that we simply don't possess, right? So in order to write something like a moral rule book, we would have to be aware of all possible states of affairs that could possibly arise and then plan in advance how you should respond to this. What's the appropriate way to respond to that? We'd also have to undergo constant revision because new situations are constantly arising. So the, the printing presses would have to be running constantly and the book getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? So I think for that reason, you know, trying to genetically engineer somebody to have the virtue of practical wisdom is, is probably not going to be very possible at all, right? I think that's going to have to come from life experience, right? Uh, and from emulating, you know, what Aristotle calls the, the franimoi, right? These, these morally mature men and women who embody right action. Tom, you have a point you want to raise? Yeah. And then if you're going to genetically engineer into people virtuous traits, aren't you starting to strip away free will? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So Alistair McIntyre has got a great article I'll post on the, the course page as well. It's called Seven Traits for the Future. This may be a good place to finish for tonight. McIntyre wrote this article in 1978. It's an incredibly prophetic article. McIntyre argues that in the future, when we, we engage in genetic engineering, there's probably going to be seven key virtues that we're going to try to inscribe in our, our descendants, our children. And he says one of them is basically something like Kant's principle of humanity, that they will not instrumentalize other people. They will not manipulate other people and they will honor and treat others as, as ends in themselves and not as a mere means. But McIntyre says that because of this, because they're, they're engineered to have this virtue, those who are engineered will not engage in the engineering process because they will recognize that there's something inherently instrumentalizing about genetic engineering, right? So the design will reject the designing process because of the virtues that was given to them and the, the designing process. So it's sometimes called McIntyre's Paradox. Um, so that, that's a really interesting article. I'll post that on the, the course page as well.
Do you see any, any hope in the uh, organic earth mom movement? In, in, like these people who won't buy non-organic coffee, um, are they more or less likely to be genetically engineering their kids? Or could, could this yeah. organic movement be a, be a, a sort of fail safe against what's coming? I'm not maybe as familiar with the organic mother movement as, as you're aware of the organic home mother movement. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there's all kinds. It's, it's, it's like strange bedfellows because there's people I wouldn't consider liberal, but they yeah. won't touch receipts because it'll make you infertile. You know, I see. Okay. Uh, you probably know yeah, these people. So. Yeah. yeah. If you look at like hippie, like the old school hippies from the 60s, I mean, they were very, very suspicious of corporations, very suspicious of science, you know, very suspicious of, of the man, right? And, uh, yeah, I sometimes see them as like old school, you know, hippies as sort of like strange bedfellow allies as well. Yeah. Like they're sort of very suspicious of like biotechnology and like genetic interventions. And and so, yeah, maybe this this sort of movement you're talking about is sort of coming out of. Yeah, this. it's just the people who won't buy the milk with the artificial hormones in it. Yeah. Are they more or less likely to genetically modify their children? Who knows? Well, I think why are they not, why are they not doing that? Because they want their children to have this sort of pure, you know, they want to be as healthy as possible. You know, they want their children to not be, you know, poisoned with artificial pesticides and hormones. And so, I mean, it's not hard to imagine them going in the direction of, of seeing genetic engineering as kind of a shortcut to getting to that, having this, this perfect biological optimal health. Right. Mm -hmm. And we'll just, well, why spend all this time agonizing over the child, child's diet when I, I've got this shortcut available? Yeah, really the, about, go ahead. They're the same people who complain about GMO food. Yeah, that's a huge issue in Europe. I was I lived in France for two years, and people that's like a major, major political issue. GMOs, like like presidential debates. It's like I was just amazed at what a big issue that was in France. It, you know, just not in the U.S. So we won't eat GMOs, but we'll become GMOs. Yeah, that's 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 a great point, Bill. I'm really worried about mood control as well as another potential shortcut here to uh, avoiding the hard but very rewarding work of virtuous parenting or teaching. If you're a teacher, if you're a parent, I mean, some of you, many of your parents probably, and you know, you see how hard it, but how rewarding it is to to really raise children, right, and to really inculcate certain virtues in them. I think there's going to be the real possibility of mood control going in the forward where we have total mood control, where, you know, if you're going to, uh, you know, uh, a wedding one day, you take one pill. If you go to a funeral another day, you take a green pill. If you have to take an exam, you take a blue pill. And the possibility of total mood control is coming, right? Very, very precise drugs that will give you complete and total control of your mood at every single moment. The question is, is that something that we should pursue? Right. So that's going to be an important question as well going forward. Um, Fukuyama has a very interesting discussion of this in his book, um, Our Posting in Future. This is a good point to maybe stop, but um, have a great week, everybody. And uh, next week, we'll, we'll wrap up a little bit more. I'll talk about some of these beginning of life issues, but we'll really focus on end of life issues and about this question of, of really what is death and when do we die? It's really a very interesting empirical and really metaphysical question. And uh, we'll pick up with that next Wednesday night. So thank you, everybody. Have a great week. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.